It is good to open the Bible, isn't it? Take your copy of the Bible that you hopefully have with you and uh, open it to Mark chapter 6. As you're turning there, let me just remind you of something that Jesus said about the Word of God. He said in Matthew 4, 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the words in the Gospel of Mark are just that, God's words, as he inspired Mark to write them for us. So let's just listen to them humbly and learn together, shall we? Today we're up to verses 14 to 29 on our journey straight through the book of Mark. And this is today kind of a disturbing passage. It is a gruesome passage about the murder of John the Baptist. And interestingly, of note, uh, this is the only account in the entire Gospel of Mark that isn't about Jesus himself. Mark pauses the story just for a moment to tell us about this other person, the, co- the, the cousin of the Lord Jesus, John the Baptist. What happened to him? Well, we find it right here. Before we read the passage, though, let's talk about John in general for a moment and remind ourselves who he was, just just lay a little bit of, of background. John was the forerunner of Jesus. So before, uh, before John came on the scene, there had been about 500 years of prophetic silence in Israel. God was not raising up men at that time like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so forth. Hundreds of years had passed by and it seemed like God was just silent. But when John comes on the scene, all that changed. There's now a man out in the wilderness preaching that the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. And he preaches this message of repentance from sin. And he told people to look for the Messiah and to trust in him. And he did not leave it vague as to who the Messiah was because we know John saw Jesus one day and he said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said things like, I'm out here baptizing you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He was crystal clear on who Jesus was. And he would say things like, I must decrease. And he, Jesus, must increase. In other words, I'm not jealous that people are following him instead of me. I want them to follow him. That's why I'm here. We're not equals, me and Jesus. I'm a servant. He's the Lord. I'm not worthy to stoop down and tie his sandal. And he said this in John 1.34. He said it about as plainly as you can say who Jesus was. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John was a faithful messenger and forerunner of Jesus. And so after this um, 500 years roughly of silence, suddenly you've got this man in the wilderness, preaching and baptizing. And then, right thereafter, you've also got Jesus himself coming on the scene. And Jesus is doing all sorts of things. He's healing people. I mean, he's, he's causing paralyzed people to walk again. He is healing lepers, casting out demons. 
And he's even giving his apostles the power to do those same things in his name. And so with all that happening around this time, the news of Jesus and what he was doing and what he was saying was bound to finally reach some of the big wigs. And here in our passage, the news about Jesus reaches the ears of none other than Herod. Let's read it. Mark 6, 14 and following. And I'm going to have the passage on the screen behind me kind of as a reference if you were to look up from your Bible. But if possible, I want you to follow along in your Bible, okay? But this will be up here so you kind of know where we're at. So, starting in verse 14, this is the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Let's pause right there. When we read in Mark's gospel that John had been killed... It's like Mark said in his mind, oh yeah, I bet you're wondering how John was killed. Let me tell you. And he gives us this flashback, if you will, to how it happened. And we'll go into that in just a minute. But just notice with me right here these different explanations of who Jesus was. Some were saying he was Elijah. Others were saying Oh, he's a prophet, all right, but he's like one of the prophets of old. I'm not sure if he's Elijah, but he's a prophet. And those things make sense in a way because the people that they read about in the Scriptures who performed miracles in the past were prophets. They had read about them their whole life. They knew about Elijah, and they knew the various miracles that were performed by Elijah through the power of God. And, and they, they had never seen a prophet in their lifetime at all. So they're like hearing of Jesus and they're saying, this must be a prophet. He's, he's Elijah maybe. By the way, <clears throat> the same thing happens today when people are unable and unwilling to accept Jesus for who he says he is. They just make up their own explanations for who he is. I mean, just look at any false religion out there. All of them deny who Jesus clearly said that he was. And they make him out to be something else that fits their scheme or fits their other extra-biblical writings. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, they all talk about Jesus but they deny what Jesus said about himself in the Bible. They add to it or they take away from it and they end up with a false Jesus who only exists in their imagination. Let's move on though. I don't want to camp out here too long. What does Herod think of Jesus? We hear all these different camps of who these people thought Jesus was. Well, what camp was he in? He was definitely in the camp of those who thought that Jesus must be a resurrected John the Baptist. Now, why in the world would he think that? Well, the short answer is his conscience was deeply troubled by what he had done to John. Notice the fear and the what? The regret. And the guilt that quickly was drummed up in Herod's mind as soon as he begins to hear about Jesus. The first thing that popped into his mind is, 
oh no, that's the holy man that I killed. He's coming back to take revenge on me. Herod is a fearful man here. His conscience is bothering him. And by the way, his guilty conscience doesn't prove to last very long, unfortunately, as we'll see later. But then it's right here where Mark dives, delves into the twisted but true story about how John was killed. Verse 17. Follow along with me. This is a flashback, okay? For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Stop there. Now, I think it might help us to see just how twisted this is, okay? Let's talk about who this Herod was first. There are many Herods in Scripture, so I just want you to have a better understanding of of some of the relationships here, okay? So, first of all, think back with me, back to the time of Jesus' birth, okay? The Herod who ruled then was known as Herod the Great, okay? And he was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. And so he was outside of the covenant that God made with Israel. But kind of on the surface, at least, he had become a proselyte of Judaism, a convert. And so he kind of attached himself to the Jewish people, and Rome gave him all the land of Israel to rule over. And he ruled over it for 36 years. And Herod the Great was a wicked, wicked man. This is the same Herod who um, was infamous for ruthlessly slaughtering all of the male babies in Bethlehem two years old and under. You remember that? To try to get rid of Jesus? This man was an absolute monster. And knowing that, it really won't surprise you to know that he also killed many of his own family members because he was so paranoid that somebody was going to take his throne from him. In fact, uh, one historical source that I read said it was better to be a pig in Herod's court than to be part of his family. It was safer if you were a pig. And Herod the Great, he had several wives, and of course he had several children by those several wives. And when Herod the Great died, Rome split up his kingdom into four different parts and made some of his sons what's known as a tetrarch. So four tetrarchs. Tetrarch just means the ruler of a fourth of a country or province. And some said Herod actually put that request in his will to do that when he died. He couldn't stand the thought of anyone else ruling even after he was gone. So he put in his will, split up my kingdom. Don't give it to one person. I'm the only king of this. And even before he died, he slaughtered the entire Sanhedrin. Seventy ruling elders of Israel slaughtered them. That's the kind of guy Herod the Great was. So who were these Tetrarch sons of Herod the Great? We're kind of trying to wrap our minds around these Herods for a minute. Well, there was Archelaus, and he ruled over Judea and Samaria and Idumea, and he only lasted a few years. And if you remember, when Jesus was young, his parents... Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Egypt to escape Herod the Great. And when they were coming back, Matthew 2 says that they were afraid to go to Judea because Archelaus was reigning there, the son of Herod the Great. And so God warns them in a dream to go to Galilee. That's Herod 
Archelaus. Now, when Archelaus died, as I said, um, he didn't reign very long. Rome actually replaced him with several governors, which is how Pilate became governor of Judea. Pilate being the man who eventually authorized the crucifixion of Jesus. Are you following so far? Another Tetrarch son of Herod the Great was Philip. And it might get a little confusing here because there's two sons named Philip. This one, though, was given rule over the area north and east of Galilee. And he didn't last very long either. He was succeeded by Herod Agrippa. And Agrippa was the Herod who got eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12. The third tetrarch was Lysanias, who ruled over the area kind of northwest of Galilee. And the fourth tetrarch ruled over the area of Galilee itself, and that man was named Antipas. Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is the Herod of our passage today in Mark 6, okay? And so these four Herods ruled at their time under the head guy, the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar, who was the son of Augustus Caesar. And, oh, Tiberius has his own twisted tales that I cannot even mention in here because I think it might be sinful to even talk about it. He was a pedophile and a pervert of the vilest order is all I can say. So there's the the structure a little bit. If I gave you a test on the Herods right now, could you pass it? It's already kind of twisted, right? But let's talk about what was going on with Herod Antipas as it relates to our passage today. So Herod Antipas at some point marries the daughter of some neighboring territory referred to as Arabia. Kings tended to do that, right? Marry another king's daughter to strengthen the allies. So he did that. But one day, Antipas goes to Rome to visit his brother Philip, who is not the Tetrarch Philip. This is the second Philip, okay? And on that trip, he basically steals his brother's wife, who is named Herodias. And Herodias leaves her husband, Philip, goes back home with Antipas. Antipas divorces his wife, which, by the way, caused a war between him and that first wife's father, as you can imagine. And Rome had to intervene with their military force to help him. So, among other things, this is at minimum an adulterous relationship that Antipas has with his new wife, Herodias. It doesn't stop there, though. On top of that, Herodias was actually Antipas' niece. So Philip was married to his niece, and his brother Antipas stole that niece, who is also his niece, and married her. So just to summarize, Herod Antipas steals his brother's wife, Herodias, who is also his niece, so he's not only living in an adulterous relationship, but he's in an incestuous relationship. And that is the root of why John was put into prison. He was in prison because he was preaching against this unlawful marriage. He probably quoted God's law to Herod. Leviticus 18, talking about how incestuous relationships were forbidden by God. So he was, make no mistake, boldly calling out the sins of the leaders of his day. The moral character of the rulers of the land mattered 
to John. That might be a lesson for us today. The moral character of the leadership of our land should matter to us. And he talked about this in his preaching. And so when Herodias heard what was being said about her and her husband, it infuriated her. Who does this wilderness preacher scum think he is? So she tells Antipas to arrest him. And we'll see just how wicked this woman was in just a minute. But I've told you now all of that history just so we can understand the twisted story a little bit better. And know who it is we're talking about, okay? Let's read on now. Verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him. That is, against John. And wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Stop there. So, first off, this woman Herodias could not bear the thought of this guy John bad-talking her and Antipas's sinful relationship. And she wanted to kill him. So what's stopping her, right? She's Herodias after all. Well, Herod is the person stopping her. Herod actually had a fear of John. He knew that John was a righteous man. He knew he was a godly man. It's interesting there that, you know, what were those dynamics like? There was no denying, in other words, in Herod's mind, that's a good man. That's a holy and righteous man. And so Herod preserved John's life just out of fear of not harming this good man. Now, that doesn't mean they were friends, because after all, Herod threw him in prison. But rather than go all the way like Herodias wanted him to do, he actually found it interesting to listen to John from time to time. It says, John greatly perplexed Herod, but Herod actually heard him gladly. Isn't that an odd arrangement a little bit? Did you find that odd when you read that? John is preaching against Herod's lifestyle and against his sin and calling for repentance, and yet Herod's just there hearing him gladly. Basically, what I think you've got here is a man who is treating preaching like entertainment. The preaching was good and sound and biblical and faithful coming from John. And Herod heard it, but not without, or excuse me, not with any intention to actually conform his life to what he was hearing. He just thought it was interesting and kind of perplexing and entertaining. It was interesting and perplexing enough to him that he would just at least listen to John. I wonder if there are people like that today, by the way. People who come to church, listen to sermons, maybe even take some sort of pleasure in a weird way to have their toes stepped on, so to speak. People who might say later, that was a good sermon. All the while, just kind of treating it like an event or a form of entertainment. Hearing it somehow just sort of soothed their conscience in some twisted way. Like maybe if I just sit and listen to how bad I am, God will be pleased that at least I'm doing that. This is a warning to all of us, isn't it? It is a warning to all of us who listen to God's Word being taught and preached, not just in this setting, but any setting. We ought to take extra care how we hear the Word of God. 
If we ever hear it with the primary aim of evaluating the speaker or simply because we just enjoy it in some way or if we're just hearing it because we know we should hear it but we have no intention of really getting down to obeying it, then we're just like Herod, right? There's a better way than that, obviously. James tells us what the better way is. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, he said. James 1.22. So, when you hear the word of God taught or preached in a faithful way, you ought to set out to conform your thoughts to what you hear and conform your life to what it says. Because if we don't do that, we're just like little Herods, listening for the intrigue, listening out of a sense of pleasure, but never really listening for spiritual profit. Now, here's the turn in the story, verse 21. It says this, But an opportunity came. Remember how it said Herodias wanted to kill him but couldn't because Herod was preserving John's life? But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So here's where Herodias says, Aha! Here's my chance. Herod's birthday party. By the way, these type of birthday parties were absolutely despised by the Jewish people because they were so immoral. There would be drunkenness. There would be immoral conversation. There would be sexually immoral things happening, so on and so forth. You can use your imagination. And that's exactly what Herodias is counting on. She seizes upon this. And no doubt when all the men have had more than a few alcoholic drinks in them, who does Herodias send in? to do the dancing, none other than her own daughter. Let's read it, verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. There sits Herod with his military leaders, his, his nobles, the bigwigs of the region, and when it's time for the dancers to come in, there's a little surprise. Herodias' daughter comes in. And this was the daughter of Herodias and Philip from the previous marriage. Just imagine what your mindset has to be as a mother to send your own daughter in to dance like this in front of a group of lustful drunk, rambunctious men who were used to getting their way because they're all big shots. This woman was a social climber willing to sacrifice even her own daughter in hopes to get her husband to do what she wants him to do. She is a massive manipulator. Okay, She's a shining example of good parenting, isn't she? She's teaching her daughter just to become just like her. It's a really sad picture, a debauched picture. The hatred in this woman's heart for John was so powerful and it so consumed her that she was willing to do anything to see John dead up to and including disgracing and demeaning her own daughter. Wow. So there's many points of application that we can draw from this twisted scene. I'm just going to push forward to get to the end because I, I think I want to see, I think I want us to see some bigger 
points. So we'll move forward, although we can say a lot here. Verse 22, the second part of verse 22, that is. And the king said to the girl, so Herod is just, he and his compadres there have just witnessed this dancing. He said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, just so we realize that Herod didn't have a kingdom to give away. This was pure braggadocio, we might say. He was trying to act like a big shot in front of his guests. In other words, his kingdom was Rome's. He couldn't give away anything. He had nothing that he could give to her, really, like he was promising. Not in the way of a kingdom, that is. And his statement, in case it's confusing, his statement, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, it's used in other places in the Bible. It's basically a figure of speech just saying, I'll give you whatever you want. Ask me. And sadly, he had no clue what was about to be requested of him. Look at it, verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herodias' daughter steps into the other room. She's just been promised basically anything she wants. She steps into the other room where her mother was and she asks her, Hey, Mom. Herod and his buddies like my dancing so much, he said I could have whatever I want. What do you think I should ask for? Without hesitation, this wicked, manipulating woman says, ask him to give you the head of John the Baptist. Again, how much do you have to hate someone to want this done to them? One man said, Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. So she didn't, um, she didn't just dislike her sin being rebuked. She was worried that her husband, maybe one day he'll actually listen to John. She was fearful that Maybe Herod will decide to end this adulterous, incestuous relationship, and then what am I going to do? My status is gone. My riches, gone. All the things that I get to have being the wife of Herod, gone. So this is a combination of greed, hatred, self-preservation, manipulation, etc. And seemingly... The daughter is on the same page with her mother. She's just a pawn. She just agrees. And I say she's on the same page to some degree because she even ups it a little bit, it seems like. When she goes back in to tell Herod, she doesn't say, give me the head of John the Baptist. She says, give it to me at once without delay and give it to me on a platter. I want you to kill that man who has been preaching against my mother, and I don't want any delay to take place. I want it right now, and I want you to bring the ultimate proof to me that it's done, and how about bring it here on a platter? This is a banquet, isn't it? Let's make it real classy. Let's bring it in on a platter, as if it's something we're going to eat. I mean, how much lower can you get? We got to remember here too, John has done nothing wrong. John is innocent. All he's done is preach God's word to them. The problem isn't John. 
The problem was that they didn't like John's message. They did not like what John was saying from God about their sinful relationship. And it irked Herod just enough to throw him into prison, but not enough to kill him because he knew John was a holy and righteous man. And so when those words came out of his wife's daughter's mouth, his heart must have dropped. It says he was exceedingly sorry. Let's read it, verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Here's Herod's ego in full force. He had made this big, bold promise in front of all of his birthday guests that he would give this girl whatever she wanted. And in his mind, there was no way he could back out of that. He would rather follow through with this ill-conceived, rash, wicked plan this wicked request this wicked oath that he'd made he'd rather follow through with that than to not and look weak in front of his guests we see what's most important to Herod here don't we so what does he do he sends an executioner down to John's cell and he kills John right then and there Verse 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Reading this is incredibly sad, isn't it? This is, one of, this is how one of the greatest men who has ever lived met his death. What was John thinking when he saw the executioner coming down the hallway? Can you imagine that? Presumably he had no idea what was going on above him in this lavish and wild birthday party. But here comes a, a, a guy with a big sword or a big axe. And he opens the cell and said, John, it's time. Your time's up. Orders of Herod. And that's how John the Baptist is killed. Yeah, the executioner chops his head off right there on the spot, brings it up to the banquet. The girl receives it, takes it to her mother. Isn't that a twisted, sick situation? What in the world do we learn from something like this? Well, we could talk about a lot of different things, but I want to focus our thoughts here let me ask it in the form of a question, okay? Think about this. What is our expectation of the Christian life? Ask yourself that question. What do I expect out of the Christian life? Do I expect my life to be easy because I believe in Christ? Do I expect everyone to treat me fairly and friendly because I believe in Christ? Do I expect God to protect me from every painful experience? Do I expect God to Keep me away from people who will do me wrong. Do I expect God to keep me from emotional pain? How about physical pain? 
Do I expect Him to keep me from being hated by other people? I think most of us probably have at least some wrong expectations of the Christian life. Now, we say the right things. We, we say out loud that we know God does not take away all of our problems when we get saved. But we kind of act surprised when he does it. Isn't that true? Why is this happening to me, God? Why are you allowing me to suffer like this? Why do you allow your people to go through such things? How, how could you let a guy like John the Baptist, one of your most loyal and faithful preachers, die in such a disgraceful, distasteful way? At the whim of a wicked woman and the pawn of a daughter and an egotistical, spineless Herod. Gee, John didn't deserve that, Lord. Do we say those things in our hearts? I think we come face to face with some very hard truths when we read this passage. God's servants are not exempt from suffering. In fact, many times, God's people's suffering will be worse simply because they're God's. We need to remember what Jesus said. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me. Before it hated you. Are you prepared to be hated by other people? You won't like the Christian life, at least not the faithful Christian life, if you don't, if you can't bear the thought of being hated. And he said, Jesus did, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16 33. Jesus promises the opposite of an easy life. He says we're going to have tribulation. But the reason we can persevere is because I've overcome the world, Jesus said. Our best life comes after this one. This isn't the best life. Paul told Timothy, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.3 A good soldier of Christ Jesus shares in suffering. Peter tells us this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. What about that verse? Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 30, verse 5. There is a morning coming for us. But right now it's night. The world is broken, and Christians are not exempt from its effects. But amazingly, the sovereign Lord uses, lovingly uses our suffering to do a host of things in and through us. It's not purposeless, it's not just something that He says, I know, it's terrible things, part of a sinful world. I really can't do anything with that. Just grit your teeth and make it through, and I'll be there with you on the other side. That's not how he treats it. He accomplishes, he accomplishes things in the suffering and with the suffering in us. He's producing in us character. Would you like to be a man or a woman of character? 
Tell you what you got to do. You got to suffer. Or perhaps he's letting others see how much he means to his people. That they will not deny him when times get tough. Think of Job. Remember Job? It was important to God to show Satan that even though Job was going to suffer, he would not reject God or deny God. I think also through suffering, God weans us off of this world. Have you ever thought of suffering that way? Think about that. If the Lord wanted to implant in you and I a longing for heaven, how might he most effectively do that? Well, he knows best, but wouldn't it be pretty effective? Wouldn't it be a pretty effective method that he would choose to allow us to go through some pretty horrible things here in order to deepen the longing for the next world. Where that world will be free of those horrible things. Wouldn't that be a pretty effective way to increase that longing in our hearts? If that's what he's doing through our suffering, then that is not cruel or unloving, it's grace. We also see in this passage this eminent saint of God, John the Baptist, suffering greatly at the hands of unbelieving men and women who hate him and we read about his death, which seems so meaningless on the surface. But God has purposes for why he allows what he allows to happen. And all of his purposes are good. Because he is good. And I think perhaps the timing of how this happens is significant. All of this is happening with John... As Jesus has sent his apostles out on their gospel mission. So think of it this way. If we were filmmakers, okay, and we were designing this scene, how we wanted it to look on screen, we might choose to cut these two scenes together like a montage. We might cut back and forth, in other words, between these two things that are taking place virtually at the same time. We might choose to do that for dramatic effect. While this wicked family is killing the forerunner of Jesus, the scene cuts over to Peter and Andrew and Matthew and John. And they're taking Jesus' message all throughout the region. God's word goes on, in other words. One saint dies a martyr, 12 pop up in his place. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, it's been said. Another true statement is, and it's true here, the tyrant dies and his rule ends. The martyr dies and his rule begins. And God loves his people. He loves us too much to let us fall in love with this world. If suffering were absent in our life, if suffering was absent and pleasure and ease were always high, what would we do? Just be honest with yourself right now. What would you do? We would love this world and we would never think about the next one. We'd think, man, we got it pretty good here. Why would I want to leave this place? This is awesome. That's not what God wants us to long for. 
Our longing is for our real home. Remember how we just sang, we're almost home. That's where everything will finally be exactly how it's supposed to be. Not here. I love that verse in 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to how it describes our suffering as compared to what's coming for God's people. So you're suffering here and your glory that is to come. It says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Romans 8 says something similar. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not can't be compared, but not even worth comparing. In other words, it's no contest. So press on, brother, sister. Press on through the suffering. God does not promise you or I easy lives or easy deaths. He doesn't even promise a dignified death. John sure didn't get one, at least humanly speaking. Got his head chopped off because some dancing girl and her mother didn't like him. But this, this uh, short earthly life is just a tiny fraction of our eternal existence. This part right now will be the hardest part of every Christian's existence. This is as hard as it's going to get. This life is. If you're Christ's. And then what comes after this is millions and millions of years, if you want to speak of it that way. Eternity Free from all this stuff. Free from suffering. Free from pain. Free from tragedy. Free from sin. So let's not be tempted to think that God has abandoned us when we suffer. Or that God doesn't care about us when he allows us to suffer. Think about what he's prepared for us. Even in this earthly situation, it mattered to Jesus. Because over in Matthew's account, it says when John, or excuse me, when Jesus heard about John's death, it says Jesus went off to a quiet place on his own. He was saddened. He felt it. He cared about John. He loved him. So we, we've got to let this man's death, I think, Sober us up to what we might have to face. Whatever that might be. But whatever it is, it's, it's going to be light and momentary compared to what's coming. I hope that encourages you. One final thing that I think we ought to see from this passage is this. We see this same Herod. Herod Antipas later on in Scripture. He finally gets to see Jesus in person. And it is a sad ending to Herod's story in the Bible, really. Herod, who had rejected Jesus, who had rejected Jesus' messengers and killed them like this one, he comes face to face with Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Let me show it to you. This is when Jesus has been uh, turned over to Pilate, and Pilate was trying to decide what to do with him. This is Luke 23. It says, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. In other words, Jesus' accusers had said that he was stirring up things in Galilee and Pilate was like oh he's from Galilee okay he needs to go see Herod then look at it and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction 
he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him. We saw that in Mark 6, right? He heard about him. Thought it was John the Baptist come back. He's like, well, I really want to see this guy. I don't know if it's John then. And it says he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Nothing has changed with Herod. He still just wants to be entertained like he used to view John's preaching. Show me a sign. It says he questioned him. He questioned Jesus at some length. And here's what Jesus said to him. Nothing. But he made no answer. Herod rejected Jesus and his message through John. And now Jesus has nothing to say to him. Let me show you a profound quote that kind of sums that up. It's by Alexander McLaren. He comments on this and he says, It is an awful thing to put one oneself beyond the hearing of that voice, the voice that all that are in the graves shall hear. The most effectual stopping for our ears is neglect of what we know to be His will. If we will not listen to Him, we shall gradually lose the power of hearing Him. And then He will lock His lips and answer nothing. Do not find yourself at the end of the age standing before God having been on the wrong side of Jesus. Don't put yourself on the side of Herod and Herodias and all these others and so many others who rejected him. Embrace Jesus for who he said he was, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't be Herod. Believe in Christ. Or one day you might find that you just can't because you can't hear him. He's done with you. Let's pray. Father, this twisted tale about the murder of your servant John makes us rethink what the Christian life is about. Lord, just purge us from these false expectations of ease and fairness and dignity and respect from the authorities and so many other things that we tend to expect and think that we deserve. Lord, you owe us none of those things. You have chosen instead to give us our full reward in the next life, not this one. And Lord, help us not to drift into arrogance by thinking to ourselves, why can't he give us heaven plus an easy life? Let heaven be good enough for us. Whatever my God ordains is right. Give us perseverance and trust in you and and let our, our suffering wean us off of this world's glitter. Help us to be like those, Lord, in Hebrews 11 who were looking for a better country. It says they were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. May that be true of us, Lord. We may not be tortured or beheaded for our faith, but we know we're going to suffer one way or another in this world. Just help us to be faithful to you through it and let 
the suffering that you allow us to go through accomplish the work that you sent it to do. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.